This audio fiction is recorded for an adult audience. It may contain scenes of explicit sex, violence and disturbing supernatural entities. Listener discretion is recommended. speak to you of the macabre, the cursed, the maligned, the malignant, the possessed, and the downright demonic. Bolt all doors, lock all windows. Are you alone? Are you sure? I suggest you check under the bed, carefully, twice, Did you check deep in the wardrobe, behind the clothes? Are you in bed yet? Did you turn off the lights? They will come soon. They will follow my voice. But it will also keep them at bay. Most of them. For some of you, there is no hope. You know who you are. Prepare to be whisked away to lands ancient and modern, familiar and far away. Prepare to question where fiction ends and fact begins. My name is DJ Swales. This is my horror and gothic horror audio fiction podcast. I'm the author of Baratanak, book one in my Fitzmarbury Witches series. The entire novel series came to me in a dream, waking me at 3am in a small bare writing room I'd rented in Bloomsbury, next door to Bob Marley's old apartment. In 2012, I gave up my London job, home, and mothballed all my worldly belongings to embark on eight nomadic years of travel, risking everything to chase my dream of becoming a writer. But my dream became an obsession. I wrote five million words of prose and hundreds of spontaneous poems in decaying cafes, dusty bookshops, and decrepit hotels. During these eight years, I journeyed from Istanbul to India, from Beverly Hills to Borneo, from St. Petersburg to Peru, but I published nothing until now. My only constant companion on my exhaustive travels in countless airports, bus terminals and railway stations was a large body-sized suitcase called Letitia. 
perhaps it was due to the circumstances of my birth in the midst of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland and my own family's trauma that during my years of transience I was inexplicably drawn to places with dark histories. Could it be because I have called so many brutally scarred locations home? Like Berlin, Singapore, Nicosia, Manila, Seoul, where my home and art studio burned to the ground, and the high plains of West Texas where I was left for dead, that I can somehow taste the residual, lingering misery of war, turmoil and grief. On this dark, blood-sodden earth, I have stood endlessly on the same soil, sand and stone where many people were extinguished before their time, often in the most grotesque of circumstances, suffering such injustices that their spirits cannot move on. <coughs> on the wind I heard the moans of trapped souls seeking lost loves. In countless holy places, the prayers of the forgotten faithful still soak every surface and flutter from the walls like the wings of ten thousand moths. My skin prickled as the spirits of the damned crowded closely around me. In my obsessive travels, I ran my hands over the ancient ruins of Baalbek. I stood in the halls of abandoned Armenian monasteries and churches in the shadow of Mount Ararat. I sought out the greatest of the trees, witnesses to all of man's crimes, placing my hands and ears to their gnarled trunks and gathering their leaves and fallen bark. I followed ghostly footprints in the snow that swirled beneath the cedars of Basho's beloved Koyasan. On the high road to Taos, I heard the ghosts of crying coyotes in an enchanted land once ruled by jaguars. In Goa, stained by the misery of the Inquisition, I dreamt of Nalanda. In Egypt, for so long my second home, I listened to midnight's moonlit silence in the Mamluk mosques of Cairo. I trailed my hands in the waters of the Mother Nile. I watched dust devils dance in the funerary desert temples of dead queens and pharaohs in Thebes. And I descended into the heart of great pyramids, and in tomb robber tunnels I was surrounded by the bones of noble corpses. I do not doubt that the magic, curses and broken dreams in each place left an indelible mark on my mind and soul. They have accumulated inside me. Did they infect me or empower me in their yearning to speak of their stories through the dust I inhaled and that still clings to me? But beware, concealed among the dead are other entities. They masquerade as ghosts or lonely spirits, emerging from cracks, crevices and unholy ruptures. In assorted disguises, they are not as they appear. Pray to your God that they will never reveal their true forms to you. In my journeys, I saw and was seen by many such creatures. They scented the paths I had travelled. I protected myself as best I could with talismans and prayers, I feel some of these spectres pursue me to this day, approaching me in nightmares and oblique shadows. It was only a matter of time before they began to influence my writing.
Episode 11 of Baratanak, A New Darkness at the World's Edge. Blood on cedars and warnings of a necromancer. The sailor stooped low due to the height of the dismal passageway's ceiling. His thick fingers traced the cedarwood bulkheads on either side of him as he crept forward. In the middle of each beam, Unique woodsman markings recorded which individual and clan had harvested and prepared the wood and when. Beneath his fingertips, Igadair recognised the two carved concentric circles of the goddess Tanit around an upstanding bear. It was the unique confirmation from the original carpenters that the timber was indeed hewn from the forests of the deep Phoenician heartlands. Many times, aboard ship and in countless tawdry dockside taverns, he had heard tales of the Tyrian Carpentry Brotherhood's secretive religious rites and traditions of harvest that dated back to the ancient days, long before the Phoenicians had sailed to the furthest shores of the Middle Sea, planted their holy palms and built great trading cities around its rocky rim. The unsurpassed skills of those carpenters from Phoenicia's holy city of Tyre had seen them hired to build the great temples of the Hebrew kings David and Solomon. Hiram Abif, one of the cheap Phoenician architects, was brutally murdered for his knowledge, taking his secrets to the grave. After Ezra's return from Babylonian exile, the Phoenicians were called upon once more to rebuild the Hebrew's second temple. Carthage was peerless in carrying the dreams of a new Phoenicia. Perched on the rocky scalp of Africa, it grew stronger and faster than all the other cities spawned by the motherland. And, as with all such superpowers, new Phoenicia possessed insatiable appetites. Cults, holy objects, slaves, food and minerals, all required for the maintenance of rapacious trading networks. Carthage was no different from others in this regard but the power and sophistication of its navy and shipbuilding saw it unrivaled for centuries upon the deep. Its empire ruled over more shifting, bottomless water than it did land. Its citizens were outnumbered 10,000 to one by the gargantuan tuna that migrated past the city's purple banners towards the Pillars of Hercules. Since the permissive Persians had conquered Phoenicia, the native people had largely returned to their old ways, and the ancient ceremonies again took place in the felling of the arboreal giants. When the stars announced the time of reaping, offerings would be made. For each great tree, seven condemned criminals and seven sacred bulls would be fed cleansing herbs for seven days. On the appointed dawn, a procession of hooded priests enrobed in purple would crush fresh blossoms beneath their feet as they proceeded from tapestry-hung tents towards the trees. Once gathered in desired semblance, the throats of men and beasts were slit over the vast roots with such copiousness as to soak surrounding soils to oxide slurry. The still pulsing crimson would be daubed upon the great trunks. Then, after spitting into bowls of bloodied soil and warm blood, Bald priests used it to anoint mysterious symbols upon each other's scarred faces and torsos. All body hair was shaved for the practice. Tracing the lines of their ceremonial ensanguined tattoos, they would chant fervent evocations until they entered an ecstatic trance connecting to the undead world beyond this realm. To ward away evil eyes, 
a volume of dried red flower petals and Socotran incense would be burned, with further incense extracted from the crystalline sap of past felled giants. Called the spirit breath of the ancestors, it thickened to a great smoke, its mist clinging to the worshippers. It filled the folds of the valleys like milk soup, at times obscuring the priests from each other and those assembled. Like unearthly mythical beasts, they floated barely visible through the choking mist. It was said that in such moments, the priests could mutilate their bodies free of pain and bleeding. Indeed, the most pious among them carved out chunks of soft tissue from their bodies, victoriously holding them towards the obscured sun's white disc as witness. Many priests were lacking in ears or a nose, with ceremonial scars bared proudly among their brethren and before the generous noble patrons of the local temples, who would beg to cover their scars with gold. Several older priests sacrificed eyes and most of their muscle tissue in honourable service. If incapacitated, they were cared for by eunuchs and catamites, borne aloft on shoulders and lived surrounded by temple slaves in the satin comforts of rich endowments. Having lived lives of such demonstrable piousness, upon death their remaining flesh would be harvested from their limbs and dried, their skin crushed to powder and mixed with holy oils. These holy relics brought the temple further wealth in the form of healing salves and talismans for sale, with those from the holiest monks fetching the highest price. Unseemly bidding wars would break out between agents representing some of the most ambitious noble families of Phoenicia, those most zealous in seeking godly favours. Only when the holy ceremony of the trees ended and blood had run freely could the venerable sect of master woodsmen go to work. Left alone upon the mountain, they sang the rousing songs of their secretive brotherhood until all was done. The masters directed their apprentices and continuity in all things was assured as it had been for a thousand years. Some said they committed forbidden carnal debaucheries upon the boughs of the great trees. The brotherhoods had survived whilst rulers and empires had perished, their names forgotten. Each singular piece of wood was cut in turn from a specific grain to a closely guarded template. The hymns of the woodsmen were the last added to the hope and prayers that blood sacrifice and the priest's sacred beseechments would compel dryads living within the imperial cedars to remain in the wood thus blessing from within the impressive ships for lives upon the ocean. Only wood so ancient and noble could hope to stand impervious to the willful storms, worms and black rot which would consume cursed ships whole should the ocean turn against them. The sailor ventured further through the ship until he was almost at the stern. Footsteps thundered over his head, accompanied by multiple voices shouting rapid muffled commands. Though the world above echoed through the thick wood, the aromatic fibres insulated him like a wound. The ship rolled and creaked with the waves. He cocked his head to its new rhythm, pausing in recognition earned only by years of grinding experience. The sea had shallowed. After crossing fathomless depths at the known world's edge, the crew had been straining for days to catch sight of the Isle of Ictus. 
Most of the sailors aboard had undertaken the secretive journey a dozen times. He himself had done so, and even gone as far as the towering cliffs of Hibernae, where barbarians sailed in sealskin boats, gnawed upon human flesh, and used druidic magic to carve the most intricate stone patterns known to man. Igade's chest heaved with each laboured breath, tightening to the point of discomfort. That's where she is, he thought, squinting ahead of him, to where pitch-black shadows suffocated the passageway. Is my, my mind playing tricks? he asked himself, as dark shapes and thin figures gathered and swayed within the folds of the void. W what are they? Do they warn me away, or draw me closer? He blinked and clutched the bronze crescent moon around his neck, rubbing his eyes did not erase the visions, but after some minutes their convulsions ceased. The air is playing tricks with my mind and vision, he thought, staring determinedly ahead. Talk amongst the sailors had been of nothing but her since leaving Carthage and Gadir, where the ship had offloaded slaves and loaded up on garum, the fermented fish sauce for which the city had no equal in quality. It was already bad luck to have a woman on board, but a priestess, one who trod unclean paths, there was no worse omen in seaman's law. The signs were all around. Some blamed her for the dreams. One Ionian had awoken to see a red mist emerge from her quarters, twisting and turning on the thick air like some hungry flesh-eating worm. It stopped in its tracks when I saw it, he said, and then turned its sharp head to look at me. He swore just the sight of it had infected his spirit. I feel death upon me, he said, the day before he was presumed to have thrown himself from the ship. No trace of him was ever found. The talismans he left behind still swung above his bunk. The sailor's pulse quickened in his veins as he thought of the omens decried by the crew. Look at this infernal fog, he remembered one navigator exclaiming, pointing to the sky a week into the journey. Still it follows us, lingering around the ship since we left Carthage. I've never seen anything like it. Sorcery, another had claimed. How else to explain such willful weather? It seeks to conceal our accursed cargo from the gods. And the seagulls, said one sailor in the dialect of Massalia. Throughout the journey they've avoided our ship, yet cluster on the masts of the others. They watch us like we carry death in our hold. They'd all noticed it. The usually garrulous birds had anxiously observed their ship in wait of something. All the sailors thought her presence was a bad omen. Another Libyan aboard ship, a mercenary marine, hailed from an interior oasis town rife with sorcery, and he had sensed that the priestess was from far darker shadows than even he was familiar with. I swear by Baal Hamon and all the diamonds under my great desert, we are all of us doomed on the ship, he hissed to his fellow watchman. "'Nonsense,' said another. "'Keep one hand on your cock and one over your ass, and you'll be fine, "'and your eyes on the horizon for any Greek or Roman spies that might follow. "'For if they do, we return to Gadir without tin, "'or sail west into the unknown.' "'I hope you're right,' the marine had said. "'We journey with a corrupter and a conjurer of the blackest arts. "'Mark my words, she is not merely a priestess of Baal.' 
She carries the ancient necromancer's stench of old Egypt, Sumeria and Babylon about her. A vile trinity of the diabolic arts, a nearby Cretan had warned, as he rubbed a bracelet of Minoan beads, each painted with apotropaic eyes. I'll hear no more such talk, the most senior sailor in the group had interjected. This is just business as usual. We dock at the Isle of Ictis, grab the savages' tin, toss them trinkets and a few buckets of fish sauce, then we go home, simple, to full bellies, gold in our pockets and girls in our bed. Or boys in your case, the Libyan marine had said with a laugh, punching his friend's arm and forcing a smile. But the older man's sad eyes betrayed his fear of their fate. Igade's heart thumped against his ribs at being below deck and soon to be alone with the priestess. The words of his superstitious countryman weighed upon him. His own wheezing filled his ears as he trod warily into the dimness and approached the thick black curtain that divided the passageway from the priestess's compartment, a place normally stocked high with supplies and ammunition. Strange symbols were daubed in black around her doorway. He paused to scrutinise them, though they were barely visible in the weak light. With his index fingernail, he scratched the strokes of one pictogram. These are painted in lamb's blood, he thought, after bringing it to his lips. This is forbidden magic. Almost instantly his guts churned in protest and goosebumps prickled across his skin. He pressed a hand to his temple. Blood pounded under his fingers. Standing alone in the passageway, the sailor plucked up courage to call the priestess. Leaning against the bulkhead, he felt more indentations in the sturdy wooden panels. They gave him comfort, reminding him of other galleys on which he had sailed and would again. As his wide eyes bore further into the thick black curtain outside the priestess's room, Goosebumps again prickled across his skin, but with greater intensity. What felt like ice water surged through his veins, shooting from the tip of his cock, through his perineum and up his spine. The wings of invisible desert locusts seemed to stir the air around him. He held up his hand, dismayed to see how much it was shaking. Fearing that he was already under some kind of sorcery, he finally proceeded with haste. Taking a deep breath, he addressed the unseen and much-dreaded occupant, after first clearing his throat boldly in false confidence. <clears throat> um, excuse my rude intrusion, Honourable Priestess Emishmoon, he announced, his voice quivering. Admiral Himilko sent me to speak with you. There was no answer.